Gracious God, we look back throughout this week and we can see evidences of your love all over the place. We see your kindness as you have provided doctors who have cared for us. You have provided job interviews. You have provided friends who speak life over us. You have given us quiet moments where we can catch our breath and peace in the midst of the chaos that life often brings. Your gracious love has been chasing us down all week long. And yet here we are in the middle of this season of Lent where we journey with you to the cross. Many of us are facing painful, confusing, scary situations. There are places in our lives that feel broken beyond repair. Marriages, addictions, relationships with our family. And even when we look outside of our own lives, we can quickly become overwhelmed by suffering and injustice everywhere we look. From all that is happening at the border to domestic violence and mental health to the disparities we find within our own criminal justice system. Lord, sometimes all we know to do is to ask as you taught us that your will would be done and your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this for our own lives, for our own city, for our own country, for our own world, and especially for the lives of our neighbors closest to us. We ask for your mercy as we work out what it means to be good neighbors. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your courage. We are grateful that you have never asked us to walk alone, but that you have given us each other and you have given us your Holy Spirit as a companion. We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in the name of the one who has conquered death, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. The silent leader who's supposed to preach now. I don't know what that means for the sermon itself, but <laughs> try not to read too much into that. Uh, thank you, Chris, for that uh, incredibly generous, maybe not entirely true introduction. Um, this evening, we're going to be looking at John chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 11. Uh, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, uh, which we have some ushers who have Bibles for you. If you do not have a Bible, just wave at them and they will bring you one. Uh, I believe they also have some versions in Spanish. If that is the language that you read first or want to try to read first, uh, they can make those available to you as well. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take this one home. Uh, with you at the end of the evening if you'd like to. Uh, Would you stand with me as we read this wonderful story of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume is worth a year's wages. It should have been sold in the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the priests decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him 
that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. So let us say together, thanks be to God. You ever seen something weird? (laughs) Of course you have. Like anybody who's been to an airport in the last 10 years has seen something weird. When I view it, I try to be generally forgiving because we've all kind of lost our dignity after the experience with, you know, fond uh, and friendly TSA agents. Uh, And so we're just kind of, you know, left getting through security with half of our dignity intact. But I still can't help but notice just people do weird things at airports. Um, there's the uh, the impromptu Tai Chi guy, right? You know, he's sitting on one terminal, thinks that's a great place to do some Tai Chi. Or the, uh, yes, ma'am, everybody wants to listen to your music on your laptop, uh, lady sitting in the airport. The one that I just never get past is uh, the guy with the hands-free earpiece in, holding his cell phone in his hand, walking. I'm like, do you not understand what that's for? Uh, Christian uh, author and, and speaker John Acuff uh, noticed this once uh, when he uh, was at an airport and saw what was a, a very apparent bodybuilder ferociously doing push-ups uh, next to him in the airport terminal. That made it on Twitter. Um, people said, pics or it didn't happen. He said, I don't post pictures of people who can snap me in half. Uh, And the story probably would have ended there, uh, except for there was a reply on his Twitter feed that said something to the effect of, um, wouldn't it be nice if he spent that much time and devotion on his relationship with God? So John took that, uh, took that sentiment to his blog soon after, uh, because he was just kind of dumbfounded, like, how did we get from random muscular guy in the airport doing push-ups to uh, this holier-than-thou comment. And thus the term, if you've never heard it before, Jesus juke was born. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, uh, a Jesus juke is like a football player juking at the last second and going in a different direction. And the Jesus juke is when someone takes what was clearly a joke or another otherwise innocuous or good conversation and completely reverses the direction to something serious and holy. Uh, it would be like if I said, man, I noticed the Indiana Jones movies are back on Netflix on marathons this weekend. And you said, well, you should have spent that time praying and reading the Bible instead, shouldn't you? Uh, I, I had to pull up this old blog post and look through the comments uh, on his website, and people left just some gems there. Uh, someone commented, I once put on my Facebook status, after extended observation of the way most people fold laundry, I'm convinced that the human race is doomed. My mom replied with, we would be if not for the grace of God. <laughs> my wife and me went bowling, and when we walked in, Chris was in there with Stiff and Curry, a few other NBA basketball players. So I tweeted, just shook hands with Chris Paul and Steph Curry. Pretty good day. Someone juked me with a just spent time and spoke with the God of heaven. Even better day. (laughs) Jesus juke. When I said and described the term Jesus juke, some of you immediately could think of, oh yes, that has happened to me. And if you couldn't, you're probably a Jesus juker. (laughs) 
Acuff, in describing this concept, tells us that the Jesus juke is a great way to tell a friend, I wish you possessed the uber holiness I do, and instead we're in talking about Jesus, sweet baby Jesus, in this conversation. It's like a tiny little shame grenade. You throw it into an otherwise harmless conversation, and then watch it splatter everyone in guilt and condemnation. Now, you can judge the Jesus juke primarily about how awkward the conversation becomes right after the juke is played. And we see one in the scripture tonight. It's the week of Passover. Jesus is at Lazarus' house uh, shortly after he had resuscitated Lazarus from the dead. So Lazarus and his family are putting on a a feast for Jesus because Lazarus probably feels like he owes him one. Uh, and, and, And the room was probably just filled with great dinner conversation and chatter. I mean, it's probably going to be an intimate dinner. Jesus' closest friends and family, the the disciples are milling about the room, still talking about what they witnessed with Lazarus and wondering if all these recent arrest attempts of Jesus are ever going to amount to anything. And um, do we need to do anything to to make sure that Jesus stays safe? Uh, Wondering if the scene with Lazarus attracted more attention or bad attention along with the good. And Martha shuffles to helping serve. The room probably had a few distinct smells. Lazarus, still fresh out of his own tomb, probably had that lingering stench of death hanging on his cloak. Maybe that's combated with the smells of stews and bread coming from the kitchen, wafting through the air. And then a new smell pierces the air. Disciples turn over their shoulder to see what the smell is, and the sight should have horrified them. This lady should not be touching this rabbi. Just was it against every convention of society of that day. There she is wiping his... This is not good. This will not work at all. And what is she wiping his feet with? She has let down her hair. Uh, That's an even bigger no-no in that world. Someone's got to put a stop to this. But in John's telling of this story, the guests in the room, except Judas, and he starts calculating, running the playbook through his head. A woman's not supposed to touch him, but I've been around Jesus long enough to know he's not going to buy that story. What can I say that Jesus will agree with me? Ah, I know. You know, we should have really sold that perfume and the money to the poor. If they were making a movie of this scene, this is where the record sound scratching appears. You get the freeze frame and Morgan Freeman's voice comes over. Jesus, Juke. (laughs) At Jesus' words, Peter rolls his eyes. Can't believe what he's hearing. John crosses his arms. Come on, Judas. Uh, Andrew's probably in the corner rubbing his temple. Not this guy again. Leave her alone. Jesus interrupts. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Let's make sure we're clearing the air about Judas first. Uh, He did not care about the poor. Uh, He should have, and he gave the right textbook answer. And maybe he smirked a little, thought he'd get uh, some extra credit from Jesus for his answer. Uh, But the gospel writer tells us Judas' motivations were wrong. Uh, 
And the crux of Judah's problem here is that while Jesus' ministry to the poor was always about breaking down barriers to draw others closer to God, Judas has now used that barrier breaker as a brand new barrier for Mary. Part of what makes serving the poor a key to the kingdom is that it forces to sac- us to sacrifice ourselves, and Judas has co-opted service and sacrifice just so he can control someone else. So hopefully he can profit off of it. And I think Jesus knows this. He's not throwing out a new maxim about the futility of serving those in need. Like, "Eh, there's always going to be poor people. Don't worry about that, Judas. He's actually hearkening back to another piece of scripture found in Deuteronomy 15, which says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall be open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. For the poor you will always have with you in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So it's, it's really weird. Judas gives this nice, succinct, we need to watch out for the poor answer, which jives with everything that Jesus is teaching. And Jesus rebukes him. With a scripture that is all about opening your hand and being more generous to the poor. And it just becomes really confusing at that point. And and so he's simultaneously, while rebuking Judas, reminding Judas, uh, the one who's thinking about getting rich off selling the perfume and skimming a little off the top, you need to refocus your game, buddy. If people keep acting like you, yeah, we will always have the poor with us. And even though that's kind of reassuring to me, I just got to stop for a second of brutal honesty here. When I read this story, I agree with Judas, right? I mean, when you first read through this story and see what Judas's reaction is, uh, never minding the context and his poor motivations, We kind of think, isn't this the right answer? Now, I don't think I have the same motivation that Judas did, but I'm a pragmatic guy. I take to heart Jesus' command to care for the poor and those in need. And when I think about that, I think about all the other teachings of Jesus, I think Judas is right. Spikenard was cultivated from the Himalayan mountains. And so a thousand years ago to do that and then transport it to the Mediterranean... That's some costly essential oil, folks. And and you agree with Judas too, right? I don't lie. How would you react if you found out that someone in this church took the entire year's salary and instead of tithing it to the church for like the real good work and ministry of God, bought all of our pastors really cool shoes? Chris, Mikhail might like that idea. The rest of us would be like, oh, what? Okay. I mean, come on. That, that money could be better used elsewhere. So to hear Jesus be okay with or even encouraging this lavish gift feels very un-Jesus-like to me. Each gospel tells some variation of this story. So that, that tension is something that we have to deal with or, or something we have to live with. That tension signals that even though there is a critical importance to helping people in need, there must be something else critically important going on. 
So let's go back to that dining room. I don't know if Mary has got a sense of Jesus' impending arrest and trial and crucifixion. Maybe she's still wrought with the emotion about Lazarus' recent death and resuscitation. Scripture doesn't really tell us the motivation, so we're kind of left guessing. But what I see when I watch Mary anointing Jesus is a woman who is absolutely unhindered by the things that should be keeping her from Jesus at that point. Spending a year's wages on perfume, that's a roadblock. I don't think any of us have contemplated giving a year's wages towards anything. How could we? That would have been a huge barrier, but Mary knocks it down. She wants to do this for her Lord. The appropriateness of women coming in contact with this rabbi, roadblock. Mary doesn't care. She needs to express her love for Jesus. The social mores of letting her hair down in public, roadblock. But not for Mary. She needs to be close to the Messiah. Judas's Jesus juke, roadblock. But it doesn't phase Mary. As I watch Mary pour out that perfume and pour out her love for Jesus, I see a person who absolutely refuses to let something get in between her and her encounter with Christ. Someone who is absolutely determined to get something. We've all had those moments in our lives, something we just really wanted and, and just Either through a comedy of errors, nothing was going to keep us from getting that. If you've ever been over to my house, you might know I have the world's coolest pug. Uh, He is a 14-year-old pug, so he's really just a grumpy old dog. Uh, But he's the greatest. And and it was was the kind of dog I wanted. And uh, so, you know, early 2005, Amber and I had just moved into our house in Yukon. And we'd been in the house for about a week. So, of course, now I had a backyard. Time to get a dog. So one Saturday morning, I told my wife when we both got out of bed that morning, let's, let's go look at dogs today. So, you know, we didn't know where to start. We, well, uh, where are the pet stores? Um, and at the time, the only one on the now defunct Crossroads Mall at I-240 and I-35. So this is 2005, so I don't have a smartphone yet. Got to get on MapQuest and print out directions. The good old days. We go to I-240 and I-35, the Crossroads Mall, and we walk around for about 30 minutes trying to find the pet store when we finally come to the conclusion that that pet store has closed. It's no longer there. Oh, man. I really want to get a dog. We've got a house, got a backyard. We've got to do this now. So what's the next place you turn to in 2004 when you're already out of the house? Uh, Yellow Pages. Can't find a can't find another pet store that looks like it would be uh, nearby, not too far out of the way, and open. Um, so what's the next option? I'm gonna get a dog today. Uh, newspaper. Where do I get a newspaper? Uh, so we drive around, find a gas station, find a newspaper, flip through the classifieds, and, and we're looking. We're looking. Okay, it's lunchtime. We take a break. Get back. Find find a couple of ads that look. Look good. Um, we feel good about um, in our in our price range. And uh, you know, puppies, Chinese pug, eight weeks old. They've had all their shots. So, uh, Luther, Oklahoma. Where is that? That's nearby, right? No. 
And we spend probably another hour, hour and a half, because i got to have a dog today, uh, driving out, finding this, uh, this home out in the country in Luther, Oklahoma. We have to stop at least once, maybe twice. It's been a while. I can't remember. Uh, to call this family again. Okay, how do we get to your house? And eventually we arrive at the house. It's, it's dusk now, and, uh, and you know, we run out of daylight, but we get to see the puppy, and one particularly rotund one runs up to my feet and starts biting my slippers, and I say, that's the one, uh, and Maddox has been our dog ever since. Um, but even then, uh, you know, okay, we've got this dog. Oh, wait, we don't have anything for the dog. Uh, so we, that means a late night run to PetSmart and get all the supplies, um, you know, stuff you can afford before you have any kids. And uh, finally, at the end of the day, I get home. I've got my dog. Uh, he looks exactly like Agent Frank from Men in Black, another timestamp reference. He's been home for about 10 minutes, and he christens the carpet. But it was a good day. Love that dog ever since. I was not like, just, there was momentum there. I was not going to be stopped in finally getting my dog. The concern about selling the perfume and giving the money to the poor isn't actually a concern about selling the perfume and giving the money to the poor. It's just a distraction, a, a potential roadblock in what would have been an otherwise determined person in Mary. But none of these roadblocks have effect on her determination. She's unhindered. It's an act of worship. It's an act of service. It's an act of sacrifice. It's an act of love. It's an act of giving. It's everything we strive for in our relationship with God, all wrapped up in one bottle of perfume. And in that moment, the sweet smell of spikenard permeating the room, her act of love fills the senses of the, everyone in Christ's presence, and there's nothing stopping her from this moment with Christ. In Jesus' response to her, we see her letting, we see her letting this woman break social code of the day, letting her be close to him, rebuking the disciple that would have hindered him. There's nothing between God and God's child. And it brings to mind one question for me. Why do I live my life like there's this barrier between me and God? As quaint and folksy as it sounds, this passage sings us the repetitive song in Scripture that goes something like this. It's not always what you do as much as why you do it. And... There is so often in my life, maybe yours too, that I'm not doing or I'm worried about not doing the exact right thing that God wants me to do. And so I'm one of the other disciples in the room, missing the chance for this encounter with God because I'm so worried about a barrier that I'm going to run into. Or worse, I have to fight the temptation when I see someone else earnestly seeking to do something with or for God, and there's a temptation in my life to find a problem with that, a problem for every solution kind of mentality. And I'm tempted to become the voice of Judas echoing across the dining room table. We could have done something better. But as the perfume pours out over Jesus' feet, as it's massaged into his skin with care, I'm reminded that when we truly want to encounter God, all the barriers are man-made 
and absolutely ignored by Christ. So how are we, Jesus juking others? We could probably come up with a bunch of ways. I've seen it in the lives of kids and teenagers. We are doing a good job of not doing it here. But they're not, you know, smart enough. They're not grown up enough. They're not mature enough to do the responsive reading or tell their story or serve in some capacity. So let's just sideline them for now. And when you're old enough, you can join the team. Jesus juke. Some of us as adults, we may feel like we're not educated enough. And so we're not talented enough. So whatever we can do or whatever we feel like others should do, that's not for you. That person will just mess it up. Let's find someone else to serve God. We see good ideas that we don't get credit for, and so we find some way to nitpick, turn them into a bad idea. Or or we see wonderfully creative ways to engage with or serve God, but the the person who came up with, with it is just someone we don't align with in some way, shape, or form, so... We go about trying to dismantle that idea. When you see people who are trying to engage with God or with the world for God, and we say, eh, not so fast. We remember this story, and we should remember that all of our barriers are man-made, and they're all going to be absolutely ignored by Christ. And we also Jesus-juke ourselves. We want to do something, but I just can't. Uh, I want to give like Mary. I want to give a tithe or an offering to Christ, but I can't, I can't afford to do that. Jesus, juke ourselves. Create a barrier that Christ wants to absolutely ignore. We're doing something simple like worship. Uh, maybe we, we really want to pour our heart into it or, 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 or help out with it, but I'm just not talented enough. Or maybe people look at me and think I'm weird. Uh, maybe my friends will judge me. Maybe the people around the room won't accept me. Jesus juke ourselves. We think I, I'm not talented enough or smart enough to help out. People will... Reject me. They won't accept my help. Or worse yet, I will fall flat on my face in service to God. Guys, if God was going to reject someone, he would have done it in this story. Because Mary was, if we're honest with ourselves, doing something incredibly wasteful, right? Hey, she's, she, Judas was right. She could have been selling that that perfume and giving money to the poor. And I'm willing to say that if she had, Jesus has been okay with that too. And we're reminded that all these barriers that we make that stop us from doing something to engage with Christ are man-made and absolutely ignored by Christ. When I think about stories like this, I think about a young lady in the first youth group that I ministered to uh, she'd started coming to the church um, because she was dating a guy that came to the church. Uh, family, and that guy's family went to this church. Uh, she's a single-parent family, um, you know, grew up without her dad, didn't have a lot of, of church background, but had an amazing voice. 
Uh, and and uh, even though she'd broken up with this guy, she was friends with his sister, so she kept coming because he went off to college. And, and, and so this friend told me, you know, hey, she is, uh, she's in choir, she does competitive stuff. And, you know, we were starting kind of fresh uh, at Lake Overholster with the youth ministry. And so the uh, first thing I wanted to do was put a worship team together. Not We just had to have music because it was such an easy way for teenagers with even a modicum of talents to get involved and, and understand that they had a place in the church. But, of course, when I first approached her about it, she juked herself right out of the spot. <laughs> I can't do that. I've never sung by myself before. Uh, I, I'm new here. Uh, isn't there someone else who's been here the whole time? Uh, you can find someone else who will take that for me. I, I'll probably mess it up. I really haven't even been a strong Christian that long. Just one juke after another. But after some time and some convincing and uh, some prayer on both our parts, I eventually got her. Uh, to help lead worship uh, with the youth group on Wednesday nights. And for two years, watched her, not just because she was a talented singer, but just as she grew in her relationship with Christ, help us cultivate these incredibly moving worship experiences on Wednesday nights. She became as much of a leader as the pastor. All the barriers that would keep us from encountering Christ, are man-made and absolutely ignored by Christ. With her, we had someone who could have tallied up all the reasons not to be close to God. She could have put up roadblock after roadblock, and she tried to. But where we put up roadblocks between us and Christ, Jesus says, be free. That's what I love about this story. And it's what I love about this table as well. I was studying the scripture and trying to think, how, how do I preach this during Lent? I mean, I understand chronologically why this story comes right before, uh, right before Palm Sunday. But, but what's, what's the message here that really resonates with Lent? The season of remembering Christ's death season of participating with it in some ways. And I think it's something like this. The season of Lent is a time to put to death, in this instance, our own fears. Instead of saying the cost is too much, or the risk is too much, or that might be weird, or no one's ever done it like that before, or I'm just not good enough, we get to push the barriers down. We get to let that fear inside us die. We get to let that be sacrificed as well so something better can take its place. We get to come to this table and Mary comes to Jesus' feet, 100% unhindered. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there's a, a lot of times where we just don't feel worthy enough to be close to you. Or, or maybe we feel like we deserve the space that's between you and us. We, we feel like we don't measure up. 
feel like it's not our place to do something, to say something. Remind us of Mary. Cultivate in us that deep passion that says, we are coming for you, Jesus. Nobody's going to stand in our way. Nothing's going to stand in our way. God, help us to live a life so engaged with you that it's just absolutely free from the fear that Mary could have had in this story. Help us to recklessly pursue you and everything that you would want for us in our lives. Amen. We are reminded that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup, or he took the bread, gave thanks, said, this is my body, which is for you. After everybody had been served, he took the cup, said, this is my blood, it's the blood of a new covenant, and it's poured out for everyone. Drink it in remembrance of me. Here at Ace Church, we practice a completely unhindered table, which means a few things. One, uh, we don't want any barriers, so the bread is gluten-free. The cup is non-alcoholic. And because we practice open communion, we basically say that anybody who wants to experience Jesus as their Lord and Savior is welcome to come. You'll make your way out to this side, down the aisle, hands cupped. Because grace take it's something we receive. So when you're comfortable, come, listen to what these people have to say to you. Be reminded that there are no barriers between us and Christ.